0: today, Yuri Bilsic, Tom Dev and Julian Balthazar. Gentlemen, how are we?
1: Great Alex, hey, And guys. awesome to be back on as always and it's that midway mark of the season and things are getting pretty hairy on either side as well, MVP conversations, we'll defensive there. play of the year conversations and all that so yeah looking forward to it as always.
0: Jules, any great stories you want to touch on at the top of the show? What have you been going on? We haven't seen you for two weeks. Tell us what's happening.
2: That's right. I, I haven't been active on the uh, the chat with you guys, but I have been watching NBA every single day. I'm loving it at the moment. And as we all know, I, I'll be the first to announce that Pascal Siakam <laughs> went to the Pacers. I know we all know it, know it, but I'd, I'd love to talk about it because the Pacers, I believe, sent three first-round picks to the Raptors um, in response. So obviously, Pascal is their push I believe, for the playoffs and potentially a championship. So it'll be interesting to see how he fits in with that lineup. He played one game. They lost against the Blazers, but I think he he was actually the one player that shunned in the team that was struggling. Um, But Tyrese had 17 assists. I was trying to find the stat to see how many of those assists were to Pascal and if they have any chemistry between them, but that wasn't available. But I will do a count on that just to see. But I'm really looking forward to the duo. Um and, and then for the Raptors, you know, what does it mean for them losing Pascal? Are they doing a rebuild? Are they looking to you know focus the team around Barnes and quickly and the youth that comes through? So yeah, really interesting to see how that one plays out. Interestingly enough, when I was reading about the trade, I know Bruce Brown uh, went to the Raptors as well in that trade, but supposedly he might be moved on as well. So he's playing today at the moment for the Raptors, but I don't think he should get too comfortable because the uh, the Lakers are interested in him. Yeah, yeah, they showed some interest last year they're still interested in him.
0: The, the Raptors, I'll just take 30 seconds before we throw to Tom to say good Um The Raptors are in a, really, a really funny spot. So they're owned by a corporation that owns a lot of Toronto sports team like the Maple Leafs. They've had a change of CEO And the outgoing CEO was a big fan of Masai Ujiri, the general manager of the basketball ops. But the new incoming one has kind of shown that he wants to make some changes. So behind the scenes in the Raptors, this has been an organization that's trusted in their GM and doesn't leak a lot of things. And I think in the last couple of weeks, you've started to see a new pressure from outside. And that might Mm. be some of the stuff that we're seeing now. Tom, what's going on, mate? How are you?
3: Yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm good as well. Enjoying a lot of basketball and, you know,
0: like Jules... Obviously, knew about
3: this Yakim trade happening, and you know it's an interesting one in my opinion. I, I, you know, I'd love to know your thoughts, Alex, as a Toronto fan, because for me personally, I hated this for the Raptors. You know, three first-round picks, yes, but if you actually look at them, they might not actually end up being anything of significant value. Um Bruce Brown, his contract's only really good on a contending team. I mean, twenty-two million for a guy to play average minutes, not so thrilled for it. um, For a team that's not really going to be contending. And at the end of the day, they lost Fred VanVleet and Siakam for three first-round picks, Bruce Brown, Jordan Noir and Kiara Lewis, when if they'd traded them last year, they could have gotten a whole lot more. So really, I think the indecisiveness of the Raptors' front office could actually come back to bite them here, whereas last year, I reckon they could have gotten a whole lot more for them.
0: I don't disagree. All right, I'm the guy with the Raptors hat. Give me 60 seconds to talk about it. Uh, then I won't talk the rest of today's show, guys. Kira Lewis, we got him via the New Orleans Pelicans, was an interesting uh, prospect, 14th, 15th, somewhere in the draft a couple of years ago. But he's been dealt with injuries, and we all know that uh, the Pelicans seem to have a, a problem with injuries on their staff. So uh, he's, he's a, a dart in the wall. You don't know that we could get something there. Um, Jordan Wara, I don't mind. I watched a lot of Pacers basketball at the end of last year, and I think he could give us minutes not in the six, man, but he's a talented player. Bruce Brown, I trust a lot after seeing him um, borderline star in two appearances for the Nuggets at the end of last year as they won the championship. I trust him with a ball in his hands at the end of games. I don't want him scoring 30, but I know he can score 15 with some regularity. The problem with the Pascal trade is we lost Fred Van Vliet for nothing. Was that the right move by the Raptors organization? Maybe. I mean, I wouldn't have re-signed him to the money that Houston threw at him. Um, He's a franchise legend, but I don't think he's worth $40 million a year, particularly as the Raptors have kind of shown since the championship, the direction's an issue. So the Raptors were under a lot of pressure. I said earlier they've got a, a change in ownership kind of in the CEO direction. It's under a lot of pressure to get something back. I think this is the best thing for uh, Pascal Siakam. So maybe it's the organization going, all right, you're a guy that brought us a championship. Uh, Let's send you somewhere okay. I don't hate Bruce Brown and and the picks. Eh, They're not so great. The main thing it does is it ensures that this is Scotty Barnes' team. Um, If you've watched a lot of Raptors games this year, Barnes has been probably the best player, but there's nights Pascal goes for 35. There's weeks where he goes for three 30-point games in a row. What this does is gives the team direction, for better or worse, Um, we still got some talented guys on the team like Gary Trent Jr. who started the year horribly. I had to pick the six man, but shoots like 48% over the last 20 appearances uh, from three. That is, uh, we still got guys like Dennis Schroeder won a gold medal in the Olympic and the FIBA world cup, excuse me, this summer. So I said, when we traded, um, OG, my fear was that there wouldn't be another trade. Um, I'm kind of glad we're deciding to move on. I think there's some, periphery stuff they could do around the edges. Like I'm not sure if Chris Boucher stays with the team, but it gives us some motivation to try stuff through the year and then move on next year. I'd be willing to hear any other thoughts. Really well said.
1: Yeah, I think as well just with the Siakam trade too, and especially him going to Indiana now, the big part is that those contract extensions between him and Raptors management broke down before the start of the season. They couldn't come to any real... Resolution, right, to give Siakam the big bag. So then the question does come to as well once he completes this, well, second half of the season and sort of first half of a new chapter with the Pacers, is that will they offer him the big extension that he's looking for as well, especially that CBA agreement that takes into effect as well? We've seen Tyrese Halliburton get a massive bag as well and thoroughly deserved. So that's going to be the real big part as well build around him and Tyrese and into what could well be a deep playoff run. Because we know, right, with Indiana Pacers teams over the years that they don't really rebuild in the sense they're always sort of right there, here and there. Sometimes they may get out, like be exited from the first round, say, and then sort of some pundits or critics will be like, well, where are they really going? But I think their direction, though, what they needed to address, especially defensively, Siakam does provide that Absolutely. in a way too. He's probably not going to, again, a lot of people said, he's probably not going to solve all their problems. But still, when it comes to guys in the Eastern Conference, right, at the small forward and power forward positions, he can play either both positions anyway. You've you've seen it during the start of Siakam's career, right, in Toronto, Alex. He was playing as a small forward at various points. I think the 2019 playoff run to the franchise's maiden championship, he was playing as small forward with Ibaka and Gasol. So they had that that serious flexibility there and yes the Pacers aren't a big team so that's where probably do they at times go with him at three Jalen Smith at four and Turner at five it could well be something Rick Carlisle may look into and one that I think can provide a lot of flexibility in the way but also when they really want to go big because that's the issue the Pacers do have is that sort of big man depth but at the same time rebounding and Siakam's a solid rebounder not probably elite or you know, right up right up there with the top like Giannis who averages 10 rebounds a game. But still, to be averaging, what, close to about eight rebounds a game, which is still fairly decent too. And I think as well, the offensive side, he'll fit in like a glove with the Pacers. They're number one in points for anyway, about 125 or so a game. So that fits in perfectly. And then how they sort of move into the second half of the season and really... Get it gelling together is going to be a real interesting part to it all.
0: Uh, it should worth mentioning. Uh, I forgot to mention RJ Barrett and Emmanuel quickly. I both love those pickups for the Raptors, so I just kind of want to see more of them. Uh, as we're recording, the Raptors are playing now against New York, so I keep like glancing over to the side. Um, it's it's better than it was to start the year for the Raptors. Tom, we might go from my team to your team in the Celtics. Um, first loss at home this year, so forty-one and zero is is no longer achievable. Talk to us about the Celtics.
3: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, no surprise, I watch pretty much every Celtics game. But halfway through about the second quarter yesterday, I kind of sat down while I was watching it and realised this kind of has a playoff feel to it. And I kind of thought, you know what, doing the show today, I kind of thought, I actually want to just kind of talk about this game specifically and just kind of ignore everything else through both these team seasons. But look, I'll start off with the Celtics. They are playing the Nuggets, the ESPN... it's worth mentioning. They are playing oh, yeah, the Nuggets. They're playing the Nuggets, worth noticing, if, you didn't, if you didn't notice, if you didn't know this. Um, but look, uh, for starters, the ESPN crew at the end of the game with Kendrick Perkins and, and um Richard Jefferson, they were just horrendous. I mean, for starters, they had a very heavy criticism on the volume of threes taken by the Celtics, which I won't lie. There are times where that's fair. But yesterday, they were getting wide-open looks. They were missing some, but they were getting wide-open looks. Uh, do you expect Derek White, Drew Holiday, Al Horford, Tatum, Brown pausing us to turn down wide-open looks from three? Like, I don't, I don't think that's a really fair thing to say. Like, So... While there are other games you can criticize that when they take heavily contested step-back threes, this one, I think that was unfair. Um, Brown and Tatum probably had their worst game of the season as a duo. They settled way too much for mid-range three and threes. They were nowhere near aggressive enough. I mean, they only went to the line five times combined, two for 17 from three, 15 of 43 overall. And it worried me a bit, a bit because these are the big matchups where they're supposed to be on national TV and sort of be like, hey, You've got Jokic and Murray over there who are the best duo in the league. We can play up to that level and this is the sort of output they had, which just isn't encouraging for the Celtics when it comes to you know June, if they are to be there. Um, and again, it, it seems like it's been plaguing the Celtics for three years now. The late game woes, they just continue. They only scored two points for the final four minutes and 50 seconds, which you go back, it's not like they were getting awful looks, but they weren't really moving the ball around like they were at the start of the game. And the reality is they will not win a title if this continues. They're just way too reliant on Tatum down the stretch. And this year he has more guys to use. So he's got to use them. You know, I mean, Porzingis came out of the game red hot and scored, I think, the first 12 points for the Celtics. And he was giving Denver issues. And look, at halftime, they made the adjustment. And they put Gordon on him. They made it a little bit tougher on him to get down to the post because Gordon's more physical. But he was hardly used in the second half. And then the last two plays of the game, the Celtics tried to get a two to tie the game. There's about 13 seconds left. They call a timeout. You know, nothing really eventuated. With about five seconds left, they called another timeout. And the ball just went to Tatum in the post. He took a contested fadeaway, airballed it. I just, in future, I'd like to see that ball go to Tatum, have Pozingas set a screen high to get a mismatch. Then get Pozingas in the post. Meanwhile, get Holiday and White in the corners, who were great shooters from there, spot up shooters from there. Get Brown around the arc, Tatum around the arc, and go to put, put Pozingas to work. Because he's either going to get a shot over a smaller guy, or he's going to get fouled, or he's going to be able to kick it out to an open three. So. Just my thoughts on the Celtics. I think there are con- some concerns out of this game. Obviously, it's one game. Don't overreact. I mean, they lost to Denver, one of the best teams in the league, so I'm not having panic stations, but a few warning signs. But then on Denver's side of things, I, I, I'm just floored by this team. This team is just incredible. I love watching them. There's nothing really to say about them that we don't already know, but they're just they're the real deal. Like, no matter how the game plays out, they find a way to be competitive, and as soon as the game looked like it was getting away from them. The Celtics went on like an eight oh run. They just they crack out the old reliable. they get they get the Jokic and Murray two man game and they That's get not it? every yeah. single time. It's just it's unfair. It's like a it's like a cheat code. I've I've never seen you know I I was I wasn't old enough to watch the Shaq and Kobe days or the Jordan and Pittman days, but like this duo seems like they could potentially enter the conversation as one of the best duos we've ever seen just by the fact of the ease that they play basketball with. Um And, you know, just come playoff time, I just don't see how any team, and this includes Boston, this includes Milwaukee, the Clippers, Thunder, anyone you want to put in this conversation, I just don't see how they get beaten in a seven-game series. When Jokic can just beat you in so many different ways, you know, the whole idea of game plan of Boston yesterday was let's make Jokic a scorer. You know, in game three, I think, of the finals or game two, Miami made him a scorer, Miami beat them. It hurt the Denver team. Jokic scored 34 points yesterday, 12 rebounds, but he still had nine assists. He took 22 field goals, which is a lot for him, but made light work of Plasigas and Holiday. And my only concern for them is the depth. I mean, they had a seven-man rotation, essentially, because Christian Brown and Holiday only got about five and three minutes, respectively. And that's because the moment they brought non-shooters onto the floor, Boston doubled Jokic, and their offense stalled a little bit. So that's my only concern. Murray... My God, outstanding. He made some of the toughest shots I've seen. And, you know, overall, I think Denver just, I just have to take my hat off to them. They're incredible. I enjoy watching this team so much. I want to see them in the finals again. I'd love to see them a the deep run. And just a side note, how good was it? I mean, I ranted about this last week, but how good was it seeing two top t- title contending teams on national TV, neither of them on a back-to-back? They all played heavy minutes. They played like it was a playoff game and it was just fantastic to watch.
1: Yeah, I've got one thing as well to add to that, and you've just absolutely nailed everything on the head there, Tom. Peyton Watson has really come along in his second season with the Nuggets too, and I think Michael Malone's definitely entrusted a lot of faith in him as well, especially crunch time minutes at various points, and he's known there for his wing defense anyway. We've seen him shut down Kevin Durant, right, I think in the second half when Denver made that switch. I think it was during a December game this season and he was just tremendous guarding KD all around and preventing him from his mid-range jumpers, which fell probably sort of went long or just hit the front of the rim and his whole athleticism really adds to that too and that's, I think, the really interesting part to it all for Nuggets is his sort of influence as well and then when he put him and Aaron Gordon together on the floor and they can switch it and the switching part of it makes it a lot easier because they don't lose anything in terms of mismatches and disadvantages when it comes down to a low block or maybe switching on the perimeter. And he's just a real sort of, I'd say, underrated piece, even though he's only 21 years of age. But I think, of course, Jokic and Murray get all the plaudits now. And Michael Porter Jr., his rebounding completely gone off the charts this year, right? He's averaging, what, 7.1 rebounds a game this season. Aaron Gordon, of course, everyone knows with his switching defense anyway. He can guard from one to five anyway. And, of course, Contavious, Caldwell, Pope. But I really believe that Peyton Watson, too, within this whole defensive mechanisms of the Denver Nuggets, which Michael Malone constantly talks about, right, that they've got to get better at. He really fits the mold perfectly. And he's getting those substantial minutes now, I think, too.
0: All right, Jules, I know you wanted to touch on Zach Levine uh, coming back to the Bulls and then playing all right, as well as DeJounte Murray. Two back-to-back game winners for the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, Pick one to start with, and we'll get to the other eventually.
2: Yeah, I I was more so opening them up for discussion because I know on this podcast we talked about Levine being trade bait and the Bulls potentially, you know, seeing what they could get for him. And now the latest news I saw is that they're going to keep him and and make a charge for the playoffs this season or next season. So I'm not sure exactly what's happening there, but perhaps they're, the trade with the Lakers has stalled I imagine with Levine and and then in terms of Murray I mean gosh he's he was he's been trade talk all year and all of a sudden as the trade deadline approaches he starts hitting back-to-back game winners similar to DeRozan from last season so yeah interesting to hear you guys thoughts on where you think they might end up and and really did Chicago see a future for Levine at the Bulls because with Kobe White coming to the starting lineup Levine hasn't been taking as many shots and hasn't been as prominent as he usually is so Yeah, can't you hear what you guys think?
1: I think the whole Lakers situation with Levine as well sort of been a little bit of less value, I think, in terms of like his market value and especially the contract, right? He still has what three years to run and he signed that massive five year, 200 whatever odd $50 million deal was at that time, right? Or I think it was about 200 mil around that time. So he's still being offered like 40 to 42 million dollars a season for like the next three. So it makes it very difficult though. For teams that want to trade, especially again with the CBA that comes into place for him too, I think apart from that as well is his defense is a liability as well. Like offensively, he's fine, but I think we see the Bulls play right in those one-on-one situations where he'll dribble the ball, maybe get Vucevic screen, take a couple, take a couple of dribbles, and then get to eighteen to twenty feet out and pull up. Yeah, it's 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 a good offensive ploy if you want it one-on-one one and clear out the side. But for a regular offensive play, teams sort of tend to pick it out pretty easily. So that's the worry. And especially, I think, as well, with the number, the number of dribbles he takes as well and how much of the shot clock winds down to like five or six seconds when the ball's in his hands. It's quite a fair number. So that's probably the real sort of worry if you're the Lakers. Yeah, if you look on the Lakers' standpoint, shooting is what they need anyway and scoring. Totally... Get that point, but if you're looking for sort of all-round stability as well, not just on the offense but also defensive end too, I think that's where you sort of it is a hit and miss. I think the Jamal, oh sorry, not Jamal Murray, the 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 Dejounte Murray situation too. It was reported by the Athletic as well that sort of talks have stalled, but they may reemerge once more with the Atlanta Hawks too, and. It revolves around D'Angelo Russell, Jalen Hood, Shafino, the Lakers first round pick from last year's draft, and a 2029 future first round pick plus compensation, I think, along with it, too. So, how that all sort of pans out is going to be highly intriguing because I think he would provide a lot, though, to Lakers with LeBron and AD there, too. And his offensive game over the years, especially from the latter part of his Spurs tenure had significantly improved, right? His jumper, his three-point shot. I think everything within his offensive arsenal has significantly improved. So that's going to be another one that's going to be of real interest too, I think, come the February 8th trade deadline with Murray. But speaking on those game winners as well, that was really good to see too because we've Mm. seen Joe Johnson, right, when he was at the Hawks make a number of game winners for them too. But for him to do it too Two times, twice, shall I say, in within three days was pretty special. One to ruin Udonis Haslam's retirement <laughs> ceremony as well, and the one against the Orlando Magic where both times Quinn Snyder could have called a timeout, yeah, but chose not to. Went to. rock with it, yeah, yeah, it was the right decision. It was the same thing as well when I think Dallas and Chicago played each other in 2013. I think it was March 31st that year, and they had a timeout there, Dallas, to use, but because. Rick Carlisle knew that Tom Thibodeau could easily set up his defensive ploy if the Mavs called a timeout. He just decided to allow them to play. And, of course, we knew what happened then. I think Vince Carter hit that three as well to put the Mavs ahead. So it was very smart tactics, though, from Quinn not to allow Miami yeah. and Eric Spolstra to gain the upper hand as well in the timeout and for to allow DeJounte to have the ball in his hands too. Because I think there was a particular passage there as well in the Magic game, where Trey was calling for the ball, but DeJounte was like, No, I'm going for it right now. And yeah. him to, it was very sort of within that passage of play, too. The Magic defended that extremely well. I think it was Markel Fultz, if not mistaken, was on him. And it he was, did. Yeah. yeah, it was a tremendous job on making DeJounte to take to take a tough, contested fadeaway jumper. But that's Murray's sweet spot, that mid range jumper. And for him to nail it and to give the Hawks, you know, a lot of sort of positive sort of vibes after because what it has been a really disappointing first half this season and they've most likely gone down to the Cavs because they're down by 20, I think midway through the third. So yeah, it's very sort of, again, for DeJounte and Atlanta, it's sort of a really unknown within these next sort of handful of weeks, but definitely a really good positive feel to it after all that, especially against Miami too, which of course, is notoriously known for its superior defence.
0: Tommy Boy, any thoughts on Atlanta or the Bulls?
3: Just uh, not to not to halt the Quinn Schneider praise, but if you actually do look at a video, he was actually trying to call a timeout against Orlando <laughs> and the rest just, didn't, just ignored him. And then Trey, that's why Trey was standing at half court because he just kind of thought, let's call a timeout. Good call in the end. I mean, you know, you can't say it was completely Quinn Schneider's choice, but ended up for the best. And then... Um, just on the Bulls, you know, you guys know the old saying, if you try something and it doesn't work, and then you try it again and it doesn't work again, and you try it a third time and it still doesn't work. You know, the logical thing is to just try it again, isn't it? Because, you know, it's just eventually <laughs> going to work. It's like, no, just blow this team up. It's, it's it's literally the same as last season. Started out poorly, looked like they were going to trade people, brought everyone, continued to like bring everyone back, didn't trade anyone, made a late push, didn't make the playoff. Like... They're not going to win a championship with this. DeMar DeRozan's a free agent at the end of the season. Just blow it up. I'm so sick of the Bulls just being mediocre. Kobe White looks like he could be a good point guard. Build around him, get some young assets. Caruso is older than you actually realise. I think he's 29, so trade him for some assets. Get Levine out. Just rebuild.
0: I know they're not going to on the Zach Lowe podcast he said the management doesn't want to do that or ownership so we're gonna keep having this conversation about the Bulls for like four more years I think uh let's get <laughs> on to our next segment the most underrated teams and players so far in this season Julian we'll start with you uh play a few who's the most underrated player in the league halfway through we're 41 games through most teams
2: I hope this fits the mold of underrated but I'm, I'm gonna go with Fred Van Bleet for this yeah. year I just think that he's had a really unnoticed season for the Rockets. But I, I personally know in my group of NBA fans that not many people are acknowledging that it work, the work is done for the Rockets. I know they're about 19 and 21 at the moment, but for Fred Van, v- Van Vliet personally, he's averaging a career-high 8.6 assists this year. He had a game where he had, I think, 17 assists, 16 assists. Um, Super consistent And also he's only missed one game Which is probably surprising for someone at 29 years of age Where people probably thought he'd be rested On a lot of back-to-backs so Or probably wouldn't play as much But he's been super durable this year Only issue with him I think is sometimes consistency He has some games where you know, he'll turn it on with 24 points And then the next game he might be one for, one for eight from three-pointers You probably know as a Raptors fan I so, know very well <laughs> yeah. yeah, but ultimately I think I think a lot of people wrote him off Or didn't consider that he'd be as good as he was um, at, the, as, at the Raptors for the Rockets, um, and I just think, yeah, he he deserves a lot of praise for his durability, his um his assist records, and and how much he's playmaking for that team. So I've enjoyed watching him, and yeah, I, I did have another player in mind as well, but I saw his name was written on the sheet, so I'll I'll let I'll let someone else take that one. But um, no, really really good um start from Fred Fred VanVleet. And speaking of underrated teams, uh, underrated players, we're going to talk about underrated teams as well, and. Again, this probably doesn't fit the mold, but I'm going to go with the, the Timberwolves because I feel like they have so- probably surprised or, you know, gone past expectations for this year as well. And a lot of people might say, why is that? The team has pretty much stayed the same, but really it hasn't because Gobert is now back to 100% strength. And he's, as we know, he started off the season at 19 to 1 odds for defensive player of the year. And now he's currently sitting at favourite for $1.33. And prior to this year, Gobert he had six seasons in a row where he averaged. No, it was. I think it was eight seasons in a row where he averaged two-plus blocks a game. And then last year, when he clearly wasn't his best, he only averaged 1.4 blocks. But now he's back to averaging two-plus and he's looking like a real rim protector. And then adding to that, Carl Anthony Towns, I think he only played about 30 or so games last year, maybe 29. And now he's back. And the, the two of them are really gelling. And to no surprise, with the Twin Towers there, they have the lowest points against. And I think they're the first in terms of defensive rating. And they are fourth in uh, opposition points in the paint. So... You know, speaking of the Timberwolves defensively, they are super solid, but then offensively as well, I think it's all coming together with Cap playing some really unselfish basketball. Anthony Edwards is probably pushing for an MVP in the next one to two years, which we stated earlier uh, this season. And then Mike Conley with his veteran and leadership is providing a lot of leadership and facilitating. So I think, yeah, I think it's hard to say they're underrated because they're first on the table, but I think underrated in terms of going past expectations
0: compared to last year. Tom, who is your most underrated player or team this year in the NBA?
3: Yeah, I've gone for, for underrated players just because I looked at the teams and I actually don't think there's too many teams there. Currently, at the moment, we've kind of underrated them. I think everyone is kind of appropriately rated at the moment. Uh, but for one of my first underrated players, I've gone for a so from the Clippers, which we touched on last week when we did talk about the Clippers. But I, I, I think the, how important he's been to this team since Vaan got there and they had that turnaround it's Harden's gotten a lot of the credit for it, but it's actually been Zubac's ability to, you know, transform the team's offense with that pick and roll with him. He's just a walking 10-plus points and 10-plus rebounds every game. And he plays good defense. Like, I actually have confidence in him. I mean, no one can stop Jokic, but in a series against the Nuggets, I have confidence in him to at least be able to slow him down a little bit. And, I mean, he's currently injured, and his absence is somewhat being felt. Yeah, They haven't really played anyone with a decent big man yet, but they've got the Lakers and the Celtics this week, and it'll be interesting to see how those two teams, with Davis and Porzingis, how they sort of navigate without um, Zubach on the defensive end. Um, And then my other underrated player I've gone for is Donovan Mitchell, which is kind of crazy because it kind of feels like he's normally rated, but he's averaging 28.2 points per game, 5.8 assists per game, and 5.4 rebounds per game, as well as two steals per game on 46.4% from the field, and... The Cavs are 24 and 15, and I feel like we're not really paying much attention to them just because no one really thinks they're that much of a threat, which I agree with in some sense. But no Mobley, Garland's been out for bits and pieces, and they sort of haven't really they didn't start the season well, but they've got kind of a gelled lately. You look at the teams they've played, and it hasn't exactly been outstanding. I mean, they got the Bucks without Giannis, which is a good break for them, but... Uh, I just think he's been really good. and um, you know We're talking about all-star starters, and everyone's locked in Halliburton and Jalen Brunson pretty much. But Donovan Mitchell, stats-wise, he's stacked up with them. So I think he is sort of having an underrated season. and I'm not going to say I'm going to watch a lot of the Cavs for the remainder of the year. I just don't find them that entertaining to watch. But Donovan Mitchell himself is worth watching nearly. So I'm to see what he does in the playoffs.
0: I I I know this isn't my podcast, I'm merely the steward. I'm the host of this. But if I could make a rule that we never talk about Donovan Mitchell being impressive until the playoffs, I would, because I don't trust anything until it happens in the playoffs. Um, That's me being biased and negative. Yuri Bilsic, your most underrated player or team of the year.
1: Yeah, I've got both, Alex. So I'll start with an underrated player. I've got Grayson Allen, the Phoenix Suns. And I think just what he's provided, right, it was definitely an unknown. I think going into the season with the Phoenix Suns, exactly with his fit as well. Of course, having watched a fair bit of him with the Milwaukee Bucks, it was obvious what he brought to the table as well. Elite three-point shooting. He's carried that on this season, right? Shooting over 45%. He's averaging 13 points. I think about 4.8 rebounds and three assists. So he's a good facilitator in that sense as well. But what they've been able to do to Suns, especially recently as well, now they've been able to really... Notch up the wins on the board. But I think during when KD and Bill and Booker, you know, missed a time here and there as well, was that he really stepped up with his production too at various games. He had the 31 point game as well, too, in the Suns win, which he hit a record, well, tying a franchise record of nine three pointers a game as well. And in transition, he's so deadly. You can. He basically run out to certain spots on the floor, especially to corners or on the wings, and he'll just pull up for three. And teams have really had difficulty guarding him on most occasions too. And when he takes over basically six three pointers a game. So I think he leads the team as well in three point attempts like we spoke last week. He was averaging oh actually no second chance says well. Eric Gordon was at six point seven three point attempts a game. He's at about five and a half, but it feels as though he takes way more threes though, Grace Allen. And I think the other part to it as well was probably his minutes as well. That was relatively an unknown, whether he'd be a starter or coming off the bench. And he's been averaging basically on a good part of 30 minutes a game too. And I think he's provided so much of a dynamic to the Phoenix Suns' offense, which offense wasn't always, wasn't going to be an issue anyway. I think defensively as well, he's pesky in a sense. Maybe Is not this Grace Allen we're a, still talking about? Yeah, Grace Yeah, ab-
0: Absolutely. Holistically yep. agree. I had him as my underrated player uh, of the year so far, but his defense in fourth quarters. Um, I haven't watched the Suns play in two weeks, but prior to that, absolute pest, as you mentioned, Yuri. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, and not maybe not in a Patrick Beverly sense, but he provides just those little dynamics here and there. And everyone well knows here that he was notorious for tripping and all the antics and all that. And some Bucks fans were a bit mm, sketchy on him, but. Again, he provided so much value and to, to the team as well and everything that he brings. And I think, again, it was a great fit with the Suns now looking back on the trade too and what he's brought because if it wasn't him early on the season, it may have been a little bit of a different scenario or situation for the Phoenix Suns at that point. So he's my underrated player thus far midway through this season. And for the team, well, sort of had to look at the top eight in the sense with both conferences and really had to come to the conclusion. It was the Philadelphia 76ers. And just because of what they had to deal with, with the James Harden circus spinning fiasco and all, if you want to call it that term and for having them to really sort of be in the unknown, whether, you know, they'll be able to trade him before the start of the season or early on the season. And yes, it did eventuate early on the season by the first week of November that Harden will be leaving the city of brotherly love to go to the LA Clippers. And what Coach Nick Nurse has done, right, by completely revamping the whole offensive scheme, right, and Bede's not been stuck in a low post right away, they've basically wanted to operate him from the top and basically play those, you know, facilitator roles or be that handoff guy to Tyrese Maxey and setting the screen and then rolling to the rim. And Coach Nick Nurse is, like you've seen, right, over Nurse's tenure when he was at the Toronto Raptors, Alex, is that he's so innovative with his offensive implementations and there's not a lot of stagnancy, if that's even a word anyway, with what the 76ers are running on the offensive end. And Tobias Harris, he's had arguably one of his best seasons, I reckon, since 2018-19. Yeah. Now that Doc Rivers season, is not
0: just telling him to stand in the corner. Yeah, that's exactly
1: what <laughs> No, don't happening. stand there, Tobias. Don't stand there and shoot quarter threes, mate. He's, he's very good on post-ups as well, Tobias. I think that's where not many people truly, I think, look at his value too in terms of him being an excellent mid-range shooter. And, of course, Tyrese Maxi averaging 26 points a game this season as well and most likely going to win most improved play, you think, in this time being. And also Paul reed has been very handy off the bench as well when Embiid's had his, well, Ben C on the bench, i say, too. And Patrick Beverley, again, he's provided his very stingy defense. Nico Batum, too, has been a very switchable guy, too, like we've seen the Portland Trailblazers and the Charlotte Hornets over the years. So all their flexibility that Philly have got to get them to, what, 27-14? They just recently lost the Charlotte Hornets Today, so that's just a little bit of a dampener but still to be sitting third in the Eastern Conference at the season's midway point, I think most people have had them probably seventh or eighth. But MB, that's the last part, too. 35.1 points per game, 11.4 rebounds, and 5.9 assists, which I'm pretty sure is a career high, too. It's just they beat the gone Hornets really this morning, depl- you,
0: you gobsmacked me, oh, I was sorry. Like, they couldn't have lost. Yep. Um, yeah, um, let me see if Joel, sorry, oh, got me apologies. 33, yeah
1: apologies alex there for a second anytime yeah, yeah. the phillies
0: lose i am
3: happy with that i was disappointed <laughs> when i just googled the score
0: apologies. i was like I, I know Embiid was playing so if the hornets beat them i need to watch what the hell happened but no uh 97 89 real low scoring game hornets were up entering the final quarter but only scored 14 points um brandon miller rookie 23 points got on him no doesn't look like they had Lamelo ball today for some reason i'm not aware of an injury there um anyway so apologies that yeah 28 and
1: 13 now correction so (laughs) third in the east and yeah to be in this situation i think it's a real testament to what the 76ers have done as a whole and nick nurse's sort of strategies in the way too and a new new coaching staff as well they've adjusted on the fly very quickly
0: We'll we'll get to our mid-year awards um coach of the year is definitely Within reach for Nick Nurse, just quickly because we're running a bit behind on today's show. I also had Grayson Allen, uh, but I wanted to mention Jalen Williams from OKC, second year player averaging 19 mm. points a game, shooting 46% from three. Um, is it possible Anthony Davis is an underrated player of the year? I mean, the lake is below 500, poor record. AD might be the only all-star from that team, the way LeBron James has been playing and that team has been behaving. But AD, 25-12, two and a half blocks a game, nearly a career high from two-point land at 57%. Um, we need to give this man his flowers because he never plays a full season like he is at the moment. He's holding it down on both ends. Um, underrated AD season. All right, moving on. I've got a really brief round of trivia now that Julian is back on the show. Maybe I shouldn't have led with that because it might give him some insight into what is happening. So, Jules... In the last two weeks since you were on the show, we've had eight players score triple doubles. Um, can you name the only two players who have had multiple triple doubles in the last two weeks? So I'll let you know who has had a single triple double. Mm-hmm. Luka Doncic, Brandon Ingram, had his third career triple-double, Anthony Davis, Nicole Jokic, of course, Josh Giddy had one, Victor Wembanyama, one of his first. There's two players who've had multiple triple doubles in the last two weeks. Since you've been on the show, you were sprouting one of these guys. Uh,
2: One of them has to be Sabonis, obviously.
0: Absolutely. He's had four triple doubles since you came on and Mm. said, we need to watch more Dabana Sabonis. And the other one is, uh, do you have a clue? Uh,
2: Could it be a very common Nikola Jokic? Has he had two? No, he's only had the one. He's had the one, you said. Okay. Then it slips my mind, actually. I'm not sure. uh, Yanis As soon as I hear it, I'm going to go, oh, it was him. Wow,
0: there you go. Tufiannis, no, Demantis Sabonis, four triple doubles since you came on and said this guy has underrated himself. We need to watch more. So uh, thoughts mm. on Demantis?
2: Well, it, it just needs to translate into wins, doesn't it? <laughs> He's doing everything right personally on the stat sheet, but uh, you know it's, it means nothing until the, the Kings start pulling together a few more wins. So then they have the, they've had some pretty bad losses as well.
0: In those Absolutely. four triple doubles, he shoots seventy six percent from the floor on average. So hyper-efficient stuff. Sorry to cut you off, Tom.
3: No, uh, just on the Kings quickly, I think they've had probably one of the worst weeks I've seen a team have in NBA. I mean, absolutely blew the game of the Bucks when uh, Monk and Fox went one of four mm. from the line combined at the end of that overtime period and Dame hit that crazy game winner. Then absolutely blew the lead against uh, the Suns. They're up 22 in the fourth with like eight minutes left. Blew that and Durant and Eric Gordon and Grayson Allen just went off against them and then Cases just off that trade, no Halliburton. Siakam wasn't there yet, shorthanded. At home, lost by five points. So, I, I'm, I'm telling week. you now, if this keeps going, the only thing Mike Brown's going to be using that computer for, it's not going to be in the post-game press conference to point out missed miss calls. It's going to be looking for a new job. So he better better tighten up the uh, fourth quarter. To uh, when
1: carefully. you mentioned
0: that, that Suns win uh, on my daily NBA show, Daily NBA with Alexander J. Uh, I had the trivia point. Uh, teams that were down 22 points in the fourth quarter had lost the last 1,244 games. It was a streak that was four years old. And the Suns came back and, and beat that one 22.4th quarter comeback. All right. Let's move on to uh the crown jewel in today's midseason awards. Who is the midseason MVP? Uh Yuri. Who
1: yeah, did you've gone with Shay. Yeah, Shay Gilgis Alexander. And before I, I ask you anymore, do you
0: remember who picked him for MVP in before the <laughs> season? It was one of us four on the call today. Do you remember
1: who had SGA? You did.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Continue. Yeah, no, just another brilliant season from him averaging 31 points a game, 31.5 and 6.3 assists as well on about 55% shooting and what, 89% from the free-throw line. It's just way too dynamic, right? And it's just the whole mid-range jumpers teams haven't been able to combat him and it just makes it so effortless, right? Even the Lakers game, there was one particular passage I think where he just blew baseline for dunk and he wouldn't normally associate that with SGA anyway but it's those little unknowns that he brings within his whole offensive arsenal of different array of moves and I think probably the three-point shooting yes he only takes like two or three three three-point attempts a game but it doesn't really matter that much anyway because there's such an elite three-point shooting team OKC when you shoot 38-39% from downtown but what he's done from last season, right, where he was just absolutely stupendous to this season where OKC's completely flipped the record. Yes, they won 40 games last season, or 40 and 42, but they're already at that point where they're approaching 30 wins anyway. They're second in the Western Conference, and they're most likely going to get to 50 wins by season's end. His name has to be in that conversation, right? And when you look back on the trade for Paul George, right, in the summer of what 2019, oh, whenever it was yeah, at that time, as well. Yeah, imagine the Clippers still well. had uh, him. Yeah, yep. It was just one of those unbelievable transformations, right? From the Clippers, where he was basically not the number one offensive option anyway, because the Clippers in that 2018 19 season were pretty much like a mixed bunch, if you want to say in a way too. You had Danilo Gallinari there, Larry Shmit there, Patrick Beverley was there, of course. It was a very different team at that stage, and then for him to thrive in OKC where they basically decided to retool from scratch once more and he's been the big part of it as well and he's going to be a big part of it for the years to come as well as OKC's franchise leader and we'll see where it really takes him this season too. So he's my pick for early season MVP, Alex. Tom, who's your pick?
3: I've got an SGA too. I mean, same sort of reasons as Yuri. I just think the reality is he's the number one option on a really young team. He's got no fear going up against anyone, and he's got the thunder at twenty eight and thirteen. Take him off this thunder team, and I reckon that thunder team might be a 10, 9, nine, eight seed. Definitely not a two seed, especially in the West. So you, you got to give it to him. I mean, look, obviously Jokic and Embiid are up there too, but they've had they've had three of the the three last MVPs, you know, combined. And I don't know Jokic. I just don't think his stats as a whole are as good enough to win MVP again. And then Embiid, he's missed games. And While he is putting up crazy stat lines, I think after last year's postseason, the media is just not going to give him the MVP. Um, and just like a quick, quick shout out, Yartis is just having a crazy year as well. It's he has gone yeah. very under the radar by the media and everything. Because again, I think I said this earlier in the uh, well, yeah, you know, earlier last year. I think he's just a victim of his own success. I think we just because we expect so much from him that when he's putting up thirty odd points a game on incredibly efficient shooting and he's getting the line. There's a stat today. He's got the line like a hundred more times than um, Embiid this season. We just kind of overlook it. But I think he needs to sort of enter this conversation because I think it's a four-horse race. It's not just. I don't think Giannis is out of it. I don't know why he's not really up there more often.
0: Uh, Jules, have you got an alternative? I do agree with
2: everything you've all said about Shay and I completely agree with Tom about Embiid missing games in the media. Probably not wanting to give it to him after last year. But I think his crazy stat lines do put him in the run to get another one. I mean, he's now gone into 20 games straight with 30 points or more. And you sort of think, okay, if you take Embiid out of the team, they still got Maxi, but they're actually 3-7 and seven without Embiid this season. And the current highest streak for points, like when you score over 20 points, the current streak is Embiid. Um, I think he's done it for 25-plus games or so for over 20 points. The next highest is Giannis on, 16 games in a row where he scored 20 points or more. If you go the longest streak, other than Embiid, for who scored more than 25 points, the current streak is about three games. <laughs> so it's super hard to score over 25 points consecutively, but he's doing it over 30, which I, which I think is just ridiculous. And then further than that, he's actually ranked 22nd um, for uh, total assists or assist average this year. So it's not just points, he's actually passing the ball as well. And then obviously we know what he can do with rebounds and blocks and steals. So yeah, I, I think he's certainly up there.
0: Um I had SJ and Embiid as a tire too close to call. Um Embiid seven foot whatever might be the best shooting touch in the league at the moment. Um no idea what's it gotten into him. He's so skilled. Uh you can complain about his foul baiting, sure you can complain about the flopping, hmm. you can complain about the miss games. He's probably the best player in the league at the moment. But, you know, I put a hefty bet on SJ at the start of the year and he's only paying $4 now when he was paying 20 something at the start of the year. So I'm feeling pretty good about that one. All right, moving on to the mid-season awards. We're fairly far behind. Uh, so you might just get quick reactions from everyone. Uh, Defensive player of the year. I know on our run sheet, we've all got Rudy Gobert. Um, anyone else worth mentioning or is Rudy kind of going to run away from this one?
1: No, not really. I don't think Alex too. Just I think, again, like last season with Minnesota and the whole adjustments with him and Carl Anthony Towns and the floor spacing wasn't really what they wanted wanted it to be and what they've done this season just completely sort of reutilize I think within their defensive scheme as well and what Chris Finch has done to basically get Rudy back to where he was at Utah right, there's a couple of defensive play of the year awards as well and it was all spoken about right, remember the 2021 playoffs when They played the LA Clippers and saw the Clippers really targeted Gobert with those small ball lineups and they just had so much issue. Well, especially him had issue defending because basically they wanted him to guard perimeter defenders and then take him out of the paint to prevent his shot blocking. So that's something that has changed considerably quite a lot.
0: Anyone else want to mention anyone else in this category? I'm getting a no from Tom. Jules, you look like, it's a no from you as well. All right, let's move on to coach of the year. Pretty varied. There's a lot of great teams that have kind of shot up in the last few weeks. Um, I had Will Hardy from the Utah Jazz. They've gone on a tear recently after uh, sending Walker Kessler, second-year player, back to the bench, bringing Colin Sexton back into larger minutes. Um, I'm open to suggestion, though. So, Jules, who have you got?
2: I, I um, put Doganot for the uh, coach of the year. I think, yeah, he's in his starting lineup, as Tom mentioned, they're such a young team, and shy. Is um twenty five? No, Dort is twenty five years old, which is the oldest player in the starting lineup, which is just ridiculous. He's done such a great job with them, and against the big teams as well, they've held their own. So he's certainly—I think he might even be favourite for it, to be honest. So yeah, no issues there.
0: Uh, Tom,
3: I'm going with Ty Lu. I, I just think the you know when they traded for Harden, everything went south so quickly, and they had to redo the entire system, not just on the offense, but also when you have Harden on your team. You have to redo your defensive sort of scheme because he's such a liability. And, you know, they started off, what was it, 0-6 or 0-7 or something, and it could have gone really bad. They could have gone completely down south and just had to, you know, sack him and bring in a whole new group of players. But instead, they turned around incredibly quickly, and now they look like a genuine threat. So I think you just got to give them a lot of credit for that.
0: Yuri?
1: Yeah, got Chris Finch, and I had that as well. One of the other predictions as well in another article too, what he's done to Timberwolves' franchise, and we previewed the Timberwolves for the start of the season, Alex, and I think this team had a legitimate chance of winning 48 to 50 games. Well, that's most likely going to become a reality now, and he's the architect behind it too, and his whole changing of the defensive implementations for the Timberwolves as well, seeing guys like, Jaden McDaniels, of course, just been absolute stud for the last couple of seasons as a perimeter defender. Go Bears, We've mentioned he's back to his brutal defensive best as well in the paint. And Carl Anthony Towns has accepted his new role too. And those two have really developed a synergy together. Mike Conley as well and just numerous. Other players within the team as well. Nikhil Alexander Walker, as well, has been a really integral piece to that team. Of course, Anthony Edwards with his clutch shot making down in crunch time situations. They've basically got all the bases covered, right, Minnesota, to be sitting where they are, top of the Western Conference at this stage, about what, 30 11 on the season, and they're powering away from OKC near the end of the third, in the third meeting, I'm pretty sure, between the two teams this season. So, they're absolutely firing on all cylinders. And I think probably early on the season, right, uh, they're really good start. I think most would have said, could they maintain this for long enough? Well, I think that question's been answered right away. They can maintain it. The only question now is, can it translate into a deep playoff run and getting out of the conference finals for the first time in two decades?
0: Um, I know Jules and I are probably open to discussion on this next award, the sixth man of the year, um tom do you have something you want to throw out to start because this one i could be persuaded in any direction
3: i honestly couldn't make a pick for this one i really struggled i mean i even looked at the betting odds and i just kind of looked at them all and they've all got strong cases they've all got weaknesses against them i i did look at the run sheet and i won't spoil who you picked but i did quite like who you had i didn't actually think
0: of him but i quite liked who you had okay i'll save it till the end though <laughs> jules what about you <laughs>
2: No, I honestly, the same as Tom, I looked at it and I just had no idea. I saw Malik Monk and I was thinking maybe he's potential for what he's offered in terms of 15 points. And, and I've noticed that he's there in the clutch moments, but it hasn't translated into wins for them. I think if the Kings closed out a few more of those games that we mentioned earlier, he might have made a strong case for himself. I haven't watched a lot of Dallas games as well, so I don't want to say yay or nay for Tim Hardaway yet. But I certainly have no idea when it comes to six
0: man at the moment. Yuri, I do know you had Tim Hardaway. Uh, thoughts there?
1: I did, yeah. I just think within the whole Dallas system as well and him accepting that sixth man role, I think it's been really good as well with Luke and Kyrie, of course, being the two main driving forces, but also having his punch off the bench as well, especially when either Luke or Kyrie sits as well and they can sort of really alternate the pairing of them together. And I think this was mentioned as well. I think it was on the Hoop Collective, Brian Winho- Brian Windhorse's podcast or on the Zach Lowe podcast that Having those three together may well be a liability as well, especially defensively with all three of them because definitely don't Absolutely. think Tim Hard- I don't think there's a question yeah. about that one. Yeah. Having yeah,
0: yeah. Tim Hardaway, Luca, and Kyrie on the floor at the same time is is not optimal. Um, can I just, before you go on, he's been great in the games Kyrie's missed with ankle injury and stuff. Uh, I watched a few of those games. It was 30-point performances back-to-back. Uh, so strong candidate there, Yuri.
1: Yeah, I think as well, sometimes his field goal can go a little bit hit and miss. At times, He, I think he's only shooting what about 41% this season as well. And he's been like that for his whole career too. He'll have really good stretches of games, right, where he'll shoot lights out. He'll, shoot, he'll hit five or six threes. And then there'll be other times where, he, like Julie mentioned as well earlier, that he'll only shoot three or 14 or three or 15. But he's getting heavy minutes off the bench as well. And he's accepted that to an absolute T, especially with a Dallas sort of second unit that needs further bench production anyway. I think that's been a great move from Coach Jason Kidd to have him within the confines there and for him to thrive because I think we all saw that probably had limited opportunities when he was drafted by New York back in 2013 too. And then he, he was at the Atlanta Hawks as well, sort of wasn't the first option there, of course. And then to be with the Mavericks and to really establish himself in that role, I think, he's definitely found a niche just like what malik monk has found right when he was at charlotte he was getting really limited minutes he didn't really know his role and then comes to sacramento and all of a sudden he turns into a sixth man right and he's playing such a big role for them
0: so i had a long time to think about this one and it's the hardest award for me most years unless somebody obviously stands out um Early in the season, you could have told me Chris Paul was playing a job for the Warriors that I thought was important for them. Sure, uh, he's missed a lot of time with injury. I settled on Nas Reid in Minnesota. Um, do I think he's going to win the award? No. They've got three centers who all make a shit ton of money, and he's behind Carl anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert. Uh, Rudy's going to win Defense Player of the Year. But he averages 13 points, a handful of rebounds, shooting 60% on effective field goal percentage. He gives a much-needed burst of energy. He's become a cult hero over the last season and a half in minnesota and whenever i watch him i'm like this is a guy kind of like used to play with um you know the minimal uh kind of farid or al faruk those impact guys off the bench you can get boards and, and get buckets i don't know i couldn't really think of anyone other than nas reed i'm like this guy is playing the perfect role for this team he can be flexible with playing with Juan and caddy can be flexible with the young guys like mcdaniels and edwards that's just where i settled there um It's a tough award this year, I think. All right. Rookie of the Year, I want one word answers from you. Tom. Wemby. Julian. Wemby. Yuri. Chet. I had Chet, but I think it's close. We'll see how we go in a few games. Tom, give me your reasoning for Wemby before we move on.
3: Uh, I'll go qu- uh, as quick as I can for you, but Wemby averages 2.4 more points per game, 2.9 more rebounds per game, same amount of assists, half a block per game more, half a steal per game more, lower efficiency. But Wemby is on a way worse team than Chet. I mean, it's not Wemby's fault he was drafted to one of the worst teams in the league. I feel like since that 2017 rookie V race between Ben Simmons, Donovan Mitchell and Jason for some reason, are winning a lot more of these Rookie of the Year discussions, which I don't think is completely fair because most times the number one pick gets drafted to a bad team. Um, and, you know, replace Wemby and put him in Chet's situation, I think Thunder is uh, even better. So I, I think what Wemby's doing on both ends of the floor is just insane. I watched him against Foson earlier in the week and he had 20-something points and was unstoppable, was hitting step-back threes. Uh, he's great, and I think he's just better than Chet. But it's just because Chet's got an easier sort of situation, being the number two option with SJ next to him, that he kind of looks a bit better.
0: It's been trending towards Wemby. I mean, if I had to pick it today, it's, it, it is Chet Holmgren. But you know, I probably would believe Wemby gets it by the end of the season. Something just interesting to note: Defensive Player of the Year, Rudy Gobert paying a dollar thirty at the moment, so real short favorite. Second favorite is Chet Holmgren at ten dollars. Wemby's all the way down at about 10th at $46 odds for Defence Player of the Year. So I thought that was a little strange as, you know, we thought, oh, I think I picked Wemby as Defence Player of the Year prior to the season. All right, um, Yuri, do you have your quiz ready and prepped to go and then we can get two performances of the week?
1: Yes, I do have it ready, Alex. So midweek, I was just doing a bit of number crunching and tallying on scoring this season. And it revolves around sort of games in terms of teams where they have combined for less than 100 points. So in 2013, 2014 regular season, there were 310 games where both teams scored less than 100 points in the same game. How many so far this season have there been and which two teams, there are two teams that have played in the most number as well?
0: I, can I take a guess at the two teams? Yep. I think the Orlando Magic and the New York Knicks has to be those two teams. That's correct. Wow. I've watched a lot of basketball. Not a lot of good basketball. I've watched a lot of basketball
2: this year. That was great. Um,
1: and how many games have there been so far this season? I've
0: oh got not a clue. There was a lot this week, actually. There was a lot uh, in a two-day span. There was like eight or nine. Um, I'd have no clue, guys.
2: Is this where both teams fell under 100? How many games? Yep. There's not many of them. Like
1: eight. That's correct, Tom. Eight (laughs) What? Yep. Stop it. Eight. (laughs) And then... We're finally getting the credibility we deserve.
0: (laughs) When when did you get that stat, Yuri? Because earlier this (laughs) week, there was a day where there was like six of those games. Maybe six is too many, but...
1: Yeah, so I was just tallying through the 2013-14 schedule and I was just looking through each day as well and just tallying them off to see how many games where teams (laughs) scored less than 100 points together. So that's pretty much how it came about. And then, of course, this season, because we've seen from 2016-17, right, where scoring has completely gone bananas and teams are not even combining to average less score less than 100 points a game. So that's where the real fascination lies. And a lot of people will talk about, well, Back in the New York Knicks-Miami days, right in the late 90s, where probably two double overtimes, both teams will only have about 85 to 90 points a game, whereas we see right nowadays where teams are scoring 130 to 140 points in regulation. So how much has changed? And the other part to it as well, eight games at the start of 2013-14 regular season, in the first month of October, there will eight. In November of 2013, there there'll 78 games in that month alone, where... both teams scored less than 100 points so it's just Mm. a very sort of interesting stat in that regard just to see sort of how offenses dominated defense now especially with the elimination especially after that 2004 NBA finals where Detroit Pistons and Pacers were just playing grinded out absolute manic defense and just sort of Velcro like in a way too where teams will barely score under 80 points a game so I think that's where the whole league really decided to make offense more of a priority from that point onwards. So there's just something I just wanted to raise today too, just something that has a lot of real sort of intrigue to it.
0: All right, let's Great move on question. to performance of the week. Julian, who have you got?
2: Who have I got? I uh, oh, I had big uh, Vucevic against the uh, Raptors. <laughs> I mean, we never mentioned this bloke, but he had twenty four. Sorry, that is against the Raptors, by the way, Alex. Uh, he had twenty four points, four ten rebounds, seven assists, two steals, and one block. I thought that was a fantastic performance in a win for the Bulls.
0: Yeah, big win. Uh Tom.
3: I had Paul George versus the Thunder. Thirty eight points, seven rebounds, five set, assists. But it was what he did in the end of the fourth quarter. You know, with six minutes left, it was a one point lead to LA. You know, George then finished that six minutes with a three-contested layup and one fadeaway, a three-pointer, another three, steals the ball off SGO and goes in for a dunk and just completely took over. That's what I love. I love when a player takes over in the fourth in a close game.
0: Yuri.
1: Yeah, got Jaron Jackson Jr.'s 36 points, although in a Grizzlies loss to the Timberwolves, he was super attacking every single time against Gobert and Towns in the paint and there was no fear with him right throughout as well especially the Grizzlies have been so decimated from top to bottom as well and he's had to take more an offensive role this season and he really took to the challenge and he's been taking to that challenge this season right he had a 44 point game recently as well and I think the whole sort of transparency now with him being in that should I say, the number one offensive option for this for the rest of this season, especially with Desmond Baines still out for the next five to six weeks with that ankle injury. And his whole evolution, right, especially with his three-point shot as well. He had that great game late last season when the Grizzlies played the Pelicans in that enthralling overtime game where he scored 40 points and was an absolute headache for Coach Willie Green to really deal with every single time that the Pelicans tried to shut him down. And I'd say for the first time this season, Minnesota definitely... Had that headache as well. Chris Finch and Rudy Gobert got stuffed on a couple of times as well by Jaron Jackson Jr. So it was a really spectacular performance from him as well, considering it has been sort of, yeah, just one of those seasons for the Grizzlies where nothing's gone according to plan. Injuries have really decimated any momentum that they've been able to generate. And he's definitely been one of those shining lights. You don't have
0: to be as politically correct. It's the end of an hour-long show You You can say it. They suck. Uh, I had three that I couldn't split between. Uh, One star in Anthony Davis, 28 points, 12 rebounds, nine assists shooting 70% from the floor. They opened up a big lead over the Mavericks and won that one at home. Then I've got two role players. Uh, Gary Trent Jr., 28 points off the bench for the Raps in their first game after trading. Pascal Siakam, uh, he was eight of nine from three. That was when they had a 35-point lead at halftime against Miami and then almost choked it away. Uh, And then Georges Niang had a career-high 33. He missed just one single shot uh, on 14 attempts against the Bucs. They didn't have Giannis, but, you know, any career-high from a, a, a veteran, a journeyman, is worth mentioning. All right, Jules, let's end the show on your stat of the week, and then we can go home. Okay, Jules has just fallen off and he said, I've dropped out of the chat, but my stat line is Jalen Williams versus the Jazz. All right, let's leave it there because I'm not looking up what that stat line was. Thanks for joining me, Yuri Tom. I'm sure Jules will say thanks as well. Uh, Have a good week, guys.
1: Awesome. Thank Thank you, Alex. What a way there. Thanks, Alex.